This is Unfilter, episode 325 for September 3rd, 2020. And so, let's stay the course. Let's make sure we show up wherever we have to show up. And if you see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant, in a department store, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd. And you push back on them. And you tell them they're not welcome. Hello, friends, and welcome to 325 of the People's History Podcast. My name is Chris, and this week, history changed a little bit. The protests seem to have received their expiration date. We'll get into that in a little bit because I think that's one of the more unique and interesting things that happened since we gathered here together. But first, I do want to start with the coronavirus. And... Democracy Now! has an update that covers details that are kind of just getting glossed over. So this is where we begin. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the quarantine report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by my co-host Juan Gonzalez at his home in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases in the United States has topped 6 million, with a death toll of over 183,000. More than a million people tested positive over the past three weeks in the United States, and over 4,000 Americans died of COVID-19 just during last week's Republican National Convention alone. <laughs> That's a good way to do it, huh? You gotta, you gotta appreciate the little jabs they can write in there. COVID nineteen just during last week's Republican National Convention alone. That's more than the total number of people killed in the nine eleven attacks. This comes as the Food and Drug Administration's approved the use of remdesivir for all patients hospitalized with COVID nineteen, despite a lack of published scientific support. Meanwhile, the FDA's ousted its top spokeswoman and a PR consultant just days. After FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn apologized for overstating the positive results of using blood plasma as a treatment for COVID-19. Under enormous pressure from President Trump, who called the FDA part of the deep state, the FDA recently gave emergency use authorization for the plasma treatment. The FDA chief is now admitting the agency may also consider emergency use approval for a COVID-19 vaccine before phase three trials are complete. Now, if they are on the verge of death, if they are about to die, is it so ludicrous to attempt what might be a promising treatment? Is that so ludicrous? I mean, if your options are this or the ventilator, and in reality, it's probably both, right? They're, gonna, they're not just going to do one or the other. Uh, I, I don't really consider this to be some egregious, dangerous use. It seems to me... The exact kind of thing you would do in a pandemic. For a COVID-19 vaccine before phase three trials are complete. 
Meanwhile, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention has quietly dropped its recommendation that people quarantine for 14 days after traveling from an area with a high rate of infection, even though public health experts say the move will undermine efforts to control the spread of the disease. The decision was reportedly made by the White House Coronavirus Task Force, while top public health expert Dr. Anthony Fauci was undergoing surgery and recovering. Now, according to Fauci, it may have happened even while he was out, like, you know, knocked out from the doctors. Like, that is an incredible story that's getting very little play, if true. But according to Fauci, they made these changes while he was incapacitated, at least in some form. What? Really? Really? That's, that, is, that is some crazy maneuvering in the shadows kind of stuff, if that's true. A public health expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, was undergoing surgery and recovering. The changes were backed by the task force's newest member, Dr. Scott Atlas, a Fox News contributor and neuroradiologist from Stanford's conservative Hoover Institution, with no expertise in epidemiology or infectious disease. Atlas is the focus of a damning new report by The Washington Post, headlined New Trump pandemic advisor pushes controversial herd immunity strategy, worrying public health officials. What could go wrong? Yeah, so this is sort of a clever maneuver, if you look at it in the right context, by Trump and team to bring in somebody with Ivy League credentials that can just say what Trump wants him to say. <laughs> and um, I laugh not because it's, it's great. I laugh because this was what was going to happen either way. If you have Fauci and Burks in there telling them one thing, Trump's going to do what Trump wants to do. And so then, so what they have done from a strategy standpoint is figure out how to try to legitimize that. Here's a bit more of their coverage on Atlas, um, which in their reporting in the title for their clip uh, that I that I grabbed off of YouTube, it has, quote, wrong, comma, foolish and dangerous as descriptors for Atlas. The president announced earlier in August that Scott Atlas was joining as a pandemic advisor. Uh, we know that he meets with the president almost every day. The administration brought him on uh, because earlier this summer, Trump had encouraged his advisors to look for um, a doctor, some sort of medical advisor with Ivy League or top university credentials, who basically would argue what he wanted to hear about how the pandemic was going, that the threat was receding, that the country should reopen, basically take the opposite tack of Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci, who are two of the top doctors on the task force, um, and who have said the pandemic is a threat in every part of the country. They've urged uh, partial lockdowns in areas experiencing surges. They've encouraged state mask mandates. Um, and those aren't things the president really wants to hear. So, Well, that's her opinion. Uh, I think it's playing their own game. So if one side is using oh, science and data, science and data, then for after a little bit, the other side goes, oh, you know what we'll do is we'll just use science and data to make our point. Um, and so you've got experts, we've got experts. Of course, they're all on the same kumbaya task force in theory, all working together here to help us Americans get through this, you know, part of the federal government's response. Uh, Andrew Mitchell, who is the wife of Alan Greenspan, to give you an idea of her elite status. She's in her late 70s and still uh, rocking a top media position on MSNBC. She has Dr. Fauci on to talk about the whole issue with herd immunity. And the real reason I want to play this clip for you is just listen to the exasperation in her voice when she reads the president's words verbatim. The president was discussing vaccines 
uh, on a Fox interview on Monday. And he then said, once you get to a certain number, you know, we use the word heard. Once you get to a certain number, it's going to go away. So, you know, it doesn't have to be. Uh, is the, are they still at the White House? I know that uh, some of the advisors have said that they're not doing this, but are they talking about herd immunity uh, and the risks, though, that are associated with that kind of rhetoric about herd immunity yeah. somehow making us all safe, getting enough people sick? Well, I think you got to explain to the to the viewers what what herd immunity is. Herd immunity is is that when you have enough people who've either been infected and or vaccinated and protected, that there's enough protection in the community that the virus doesn't have the capability of freely being transmitted from an individual to individual. You kind of have the herd protection as an umbrella. We're not there yet. That's not a fundamental strategy that we're using. The fundamental strategy that we clearly articulate and go by uh, through the task force is to try to prevent as many infections as you possibly can prevent. That and that's the underscore. He continues to basically say that's our that's our current official mandate is just prevent as many infections as possible. Herd immunity is not part of the task force's mandate. Um, this new guy, though, he's all about it. He loves he loves talking about herd immunity. Pew pew. Herd immunity. Pew pew. Yeah, yeah. There's been there's been um, ebbs and flows in uh, where this is going. Uh, okay, let's continue. It's great to talk about this utopian kind of idea where everybody has a test every day and we can do that. Um, I don't live in a utopian world. This is Admiral Brett. I think it's Geer, Geyer. Uh, he's the HHS, HHS assistant secretary, which is um, you've you've heard clips and audio from him before, which is a he's a he's a very much of a of a military kind of guy put in charge of the HHS. And he has this real no nonsense kind of look and attitude. And he, he really has this kind of dismissive attitude towards daily testing. He calls it a utopian world that we could have daily testing. Now, (laughs) you know, you know, this has been my thing. You know that I've been on this show going on about, rapid testing for weeks now and i've been talking on and on about how it really is the key to going back to school to going back to work to knowing that things are safe to tracking and isolating people to get sick very fast like all of that comes much easier with daily testing that can catch this stuff when people are their most infectious talked about this a lot talked about playing clips from doctors and from journalists who say that these things are just about ready to go it's really just a matter of FDA approval. We've played all of that. But this guy, who's the assistant secretary for the HHS, says, Shh, you're silly. It's in the real world. Daily testing isn't going to happen. It's great to talk about this utopian kind of idea where everybody has a test every day and we can do that. Um, I don't live in a utopian world. I live in the real world. And the real world had no tests for this new disease um, when this first started. That's his reasoning. And now we've gotten we've gotten there. But thankfully, not everyone agrees. And he doesn't make the policy at the FDA. And a former FDA chief says that there is a potential for at home testing not too far away. Not as soon as I would like it. He'll get to that. And the pricing isn't at the dollar level or so that it could be if the federal government were to chip in a little bit. So do you think this Roche test is transformational? 
I think these, this genre of tests are transformational. The Abbott test is the same kind of test. It's- genre being the rapid test genre. That's what we're calling these is a rapid test genre. This is a very cheap, easy to use test that could be deployed in schools and workplaces, give a very quick result. Um, that's highly sensitive and specific. The Abbott test is being priced at $5. You can also produce these in massive volumes because it doesn't take a lot of sophisticated components in order to produce these tests. So Abbott said they'll be able to produce upwards of 50 million tests a month. Roche said that they're going to approach those kinds of levels in a couple of months as well in terms of their production. I know there's other large manufacturers working on these kinds of card-based tests. Now you think about it, though. 50 million for a population of over 300 million. But let's just say, in r- reality, 100 million people will be doing the daily testing. You're not going to have the entire country doing daily testing. That's crazy. Uh, and this is obviously, in this context, I'm just talking about the U.S. Because in my, in my context for this, what we're really solving for is the economy and making people feel safe about going back to work and going to school and making sure that if infections break out... We catch it right away. And honestly, think about this long term, too. Future flu outbreaks that are really nasty or other kinds of pandemics that will inevitably break out because the world is hyper-connected more so than ever. And that's why this thing spread so damn fast in the first place. And we ain't solving for that. So we're likely going to need this kind of rapid testing anyways at some point again in the future. So there's a lot of benefit to figuring this out right now and taking advantage of it. The problem is... 50 million a month when you're using this thing every single day, that, and that's even after a few months of ramp up time, that's unfortunately not going to be enough for for 2020. In terms of their production, I know there's other large manufacturers working on these kinds of card-based tests. And what this is really going to allow is to move testing into schools, for example, into nursing homes, into more austere facilities that don't have sophisticated machinery, don't have sophisticated medical personnel. Some of these tests can be run just with a tech in, in these settings. Frankly, a lot of these tests, I think, could be run by consumers, but they're not going to be authorized for home use, at least not initially. So to help with the amount of of you know production volume that they're going to have and whatnot, uh, and because initially they're not going to be safe or, or um, considered safe for home use because they have to be approved by the FDA for that kind of thing to happen, they'll get rolled out to places like you said here, nursing homes or schools, where you could have a tech who's stationed at that location, and you could see like f- for the retirement homes who have been freaking ravaged by the coronavirus. I mean, I can see a lot of logic in having one of your one of your staff could be a trained technician that administers this paper test and gets an answer in 15 minutes. And then you can very quickly test everyone else in the retirement home. It's a lot of advantages. But let's be honest, guys. This thing goes to a whole nother level of usefulness if you can get it in the home so students and staff can test themselves before they even leave the house. In fact, I think they're going be to be authorized for home use, at least not initially. Dr. Gottlieb, back to uh, just the testing, the the idea that you said it yourself, you you don't think that this is going to be readily available for consumer over-the-counter type of use. When do you think that does happen? Because I think that would be uh, hugely important, too. I mean, I'd love to see it. It could start to happen this year. I would expect some manufacturers are already in front of the FDA with, uh, with requests, with emergency use authorization requests for tests that can be used at home. 
Um, I think you could see these large manufacturers come back and try to seek those authorizations as well. Initially, a sticking point was that the FDA was going to impose a requirement that the results needed to be reportable on a mandatory basis back to a public health authority. They seem to have relaxed that a little bit. They're still going to require it, but they're not going to hold up an authorization just because a test can't uh, put in place a, a foolproof way to make sure that the result gets reported back to a public health authority. That was an interesting insight that I don't think had really been shared previously on the show, that that was another issue holding up this rapid testing, is the FDA wants every time we get a positive test, that sucker gets logged, you know? And if you take these uh, rogue tests, uh, we don't get to log it. And now they're kind of like, oh, maybe maybe putting this pandemic to bed is more important than tracking the numbers. And again, that's a former FDA commissioner, so maybe it's not such a utopian world, Mr. Assistant Secretary of the HHS. Now, the the University of Arizona is doing another form of testing that's, well, it's a little stinky, but it's very clever. I do think it's going to catch on uh, across all sectors, but uh, we, the University of Arizona for the last two years has been ranked as the number one globally ranked water program in the world. And we have a big water center here. And Dr. Ian Pepper uh, has been at this work uh, going back even 20 years to testing polio and other uh, pathogens in wastewater. So when we ask him, uh, could we use this in our dormitories and the buildings on campus, uh, he got to work over the summer, and uh, we've been utilizing it uh, since our students came back to campus a couple of weeks ago. So tell me how it works, because I imagine most wastewater is collected from a number of different places at a time. Um, do you kind of use it to say, OK, this particular area might have a case and now we can go do the swab test or something like that? Yeah, that's exactly what we've been doing last week. Uh, we, uh, Dr. Pepper isolates the uh, the pipes that come out of each individual dorm and, and simply does tests. He, he gets PCR testing of that uh, wastewater uh, and then looks at the data and then alerts us when there's a positive hit, uh, a hot spot in one of our dorms. And then we go in and test uh, all the students because it's a great way, it's sensitive, as you said in your uh, preamble, uh, to find out that the building has uh, a positive case in it, but it's the proverbial uh, needle in a haystack. We then have to go in and test all the students there. And uh, the first dorm had about 300 students in it and three positives. Yesterday, we had four uh, dorms and 32 positives out of 600 tests. Overall, we've had over 14,000 tests we've done with 344 positives. So about a 2.3% uh, rate of infection. So I love the uh, ingenuity behind this approach, and I love even more that the individual behind it is Dr. Pepper. I think that is just wonderful. <laughs> but <laughs> You know, I've always thought it would be pretty easy from a technology standpoint to integrate sensors into toilets and urinals and do analysis right there at the urinal or at the toilet and then a company, if they, say, wanted to install these in their bathrooms or a government agency, could just do drug screening on the fly right there. And then when they started noticing a certain type of drug or whatever was increasing amongst the average population, well, easy peasy. Super easy. Just start testing. Oh, guess what? Oh, it's time for a test. It's everybody's time for random testing. It just seems like one of those technologies that's so straightforward for them to pull off that it, it, it's inevitable 
And you can start to see the genius of it being applied to corona testing. So they're checking wastewater where the coronavirus can show up. And then when they see something and they can isolate to a group, then they just expand the testing. And you could see how rapid testing ah, would, would assist that even more. <laughs> you see, I made it about rapid testing again. All right, well, we'll take a moment in the show to talk about the show. This is the showception segment. And I'd like to ask for your support on Patreon. I am now a 100% independent operator podcasting full-time again. And really, the only reason I took this crazy risk during the Rona economy is because I have faith in audience support. Patreon.com slash unfilter. Help me produce the people's history. If you get what I'm doing with this, I'd appreciate your support. Also, if you can't monetarily support the show or you want to do more than just monetary support, share the show. Word of mouth is the number one way for podcasts to spread. Share the show or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Recently got hit by a couple of reviews from people who don't get the show. They don't get what I'm doing. If you get what I'm doing, I could use your support on the podcast reviews. Patreon.com slash unfilter and unfilter.show slash contact. And with that, we continue on. So have the protests received their expiration date? And where is it exactly? On where? what part of the tin? And why do I say this? It really started to unravel uh, after some recent news since we got together, which I'll get to. Um, but first, I want to play some audio that showed up on CNN before the recent Kenosha commotion. This is Don Lemon and your good buddy Kuman. Andy's uh, brother, talking about why the rioting must stop, not because of the violence. It's been nearly 100 days since George Floyd was murdered. And in the Pacific Northwest, in Seattle and Portland, our cities continue to be ravaged. I have, over time, drifted more and more towards feeling like these protests are about fucking shit up and actually not making change. And I think some of this is because it's extremely visceral to be here and to watch it. I've lived in the Pacific Northwest my entire life. I've grown up here, and, and I have watched a bunch of low-informed kids destroy businesses. I've watched two family businesses collapse. It's extremely, it's extremely a different thing when you're here. It's very visceral. And that's not why they think these things need to stop. That's not why they feel like the, the rioting needs to be dialed back. No, 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 no. It needs to be dialed back because it's showing up in the CNN polling and it's hurting Democrats. I do think that uh, this, what you said was happening in Kenosha is a Rorschach test for the entire country. And I think this is a blind spot for Democrats. I think Democrats are ignoring this problem or hoping that it will go away. And it's not going to go away. And so, unless someone comes up with a solution over the next 73 days or 70 so, however many days. 68 days. 68 days. So it's not going to, the problem is not going to be fixed by then. For context, it's about 60 days 
as you're hearing the 61 days. So that's about how long ago this was. Just a little bit before things really started to get crazy. But what they can do, and I think maybe Joe Biden may be afraid to do it. I'm not sure. Maybe he won't. Maybe he is. He's got to address it. He's got to come out and talk about it. He's got to do a speech like Barack Obama did about race. He's got to come out and tell people that he is going to deal with the issue of police reform in this country and that what's happening now is happening under Donald Trump's watch and on Donald Trump's watch. And when he is the president, Kamala Harris is the vice president, then they will take care of this problem. But guess what? The rioting has to stop. Chris, as you know, and I know it's showing up in the polling. Mm-hmm. It's showing up in focus groups. It is the only thing, it is the only thing right now that is sticking. And the Democrats tonight stuck with that, right? And they also stuck with the theme that you said, the coronavirus. You got coronavirus and you have Kenosha. So there's two downward pressures on Joe Biden's poll numbers. Um, he's not in a free fall. It's not a huge issue yet, but they, they want a strong win. The two downward pressures, which they corrected since our last episode, is Joe's going out. He's taking questions from the press. He's making some more media appearances, not a lot on the actual direct media interviews, but some. And then the other thing that they're changing is their stance as a party on the protests. Now, what happened? Why did these things start to impact the race? And you have to remember, and I apologize to those of you outside the country, I know this time starts to suck, especially as we get really close to the election, because what happens here in the States is everything becomes about the election, because it's the only thing the establishment starts to get focused on. And it is a significant part of the people's history at the same time. So what I what I can try to do is I, I can just try to give you context to what seems like a crazy hot mess from where I'm sure you're watching outside the States. Um Internally, I think things shifted. I don't know if you caught it there, but when Don and Kuman were talking, they were they were referencing the DNC, the convention that was going on. And I think what happened a little bit, and I think the Democrats suffered for it, is, and this really pleases me to say it, the American public saw through some of their bullshit. Like I said last week, every political party has their narrative bullshit. The Democrats really pandered hard towards the protesters. They went in hard. It was they 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 leaned on covid and they they went in hard on their support for the protesters. But they're clever, right? They they word it in a way that wouldn't necessarily get them directly in trouble. It's maybe something if you look back on it after history time passes, it doesn't seem so bad. They they. They're really good at dressing it up, but it was true pandering, and I think a lot of people saw that, and they were disgusted by it. And I think Obama really had the best. This is, this is an example of what was happening at the DNC, and I think what cost them. To the young people who led us this summer, telling us we need to be better, in so many ways, you are this country's dreams fulfilled. Earlier generations had to be persuaded that everyone has equal worth. For you, it's a given, a conviction. And what I want you to know is that for all its messiness and frustrations, your system 
of self-government can be harnessed to help you realize those convictions for all of us. You can give our democracy new meaning. You can take it to a better place. You're the missing ingredient. The ones who will decide whether or not America becomes the country that fully lives up to its creed. That work will continue long after this election. But any chance of success depends entirely on the outcome of this election. This administration has shown it will tear our democracy down if that's what it takes for them to win. Now, while Obama, I think, had the most elegant pandering to the protesters, I think on the opposite side, Kamala had the most obvious pandering to the protesters um, as she was able to lean on identity politics a little bit more. The problem here is Trump has been leveraging this position the Democrats took, which was pro-protesters. I think, in a sense, it's a, it's a strategic positioning to increase chaos because Trump sucks under chaos. He says the wrong things. He, he skews towards authoritarian kind of behaviors, so he's going to want to send in the troops. Uh, as we saw him flex in D.C. to go take that picture in front of the church, it kind of enables some of his worst natures. So I think perhaps the Democrats felt, just doing the math, this would be good for them, get people really riled up. Uh, these people are clearly out there not going to go vote for Trump. Uh, plus, it exposes him at some of his worst. It seemed like maybe a strategy that they could just continue to apply pressure from multiple directions, this being one of them. The issue is, is that Trump was able to take the opposite side and leverage that to make himself sound like the one that wanted to bring uh, peace, to restore peace. And so it, it created a counter-narrative. This, uh, I honor law enforcement. We wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for law enforcement. We have to stop this horrible left-wing ideology that seems to be permeating our country. And basically, it's weakness. It's weakness on behalf of Democrat politicians and Republicans. We don't have problems. You take a look at our cities. Our cities are doing very well. They're safe. They're secure. I spent a lot of time in Texas, uh, as you know, just a couple of days ago. And I was with the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott. He was explaining they wouldn't put up with it for a minute. They just don't have the kind of problems that other people have. I think this is one of their stronger cases is, well, look, it's only happening in the Democrat-run cities. But what the Biden campaign has is the strength of not being the incumbent in this area. They don't have to be attached to this happening on their watch. They are free of that and able to pivot quickly. And Biden can condemn both sides, which is exactly what he did in a speech-turned-ad campaign. I want to make it absolutely clear. Rioting is not protesting. Looting is not protesting. It's lawlessness, plain and simple. And those who do it should be prosecuted. Fires are burning and we have a president who fans the flames. He can't stop the violence because for years he's fomented it. 
but his failure to call on his own supporters to stop acting as an armed militia in this country shows how weak he is. Violence will not bring change. It'll only bring destruction. It's wrong in every way. If I were president, my language would be less divisive. I'd be looking to lower the temperature in this country, not raise it. Donald Trump is determined to instill fear in America because Donald Trump adds fuel to every fire. This is not who we are. I believe we'll be guided by the words of Pope John Paul II, words drawn from the scriptures. Be not afraid. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. Now that is one of their most effective ads yet. It starts strong with an attack. It condemns both sides, although it prolongs its condemnation of the right side, obviously, more than it does the left side. But then it wraps it up with an inspirational note to the music and a quote of scripture, which is sort of a present wrapped up with a bow given to all of middle middle America that just wants things to calm down. And he even kind of calms his speech at the end there to make everybody feel like it's going to be okay. And that's the kind of pivot the Trump campaign can't really do. They're not in a position to do something like that. Trump has a hard time playing both sides in these situations and even doing basic stuff that would help him. Here's an example where he is unable to just clearly articulate a position with Kyle Rittenhouse, which if you're not familiar with Kyle Rittenhouse, I have copious links in the, well, several links in the show notes. Uh, He is believed to have shot and potentially killed some protesters that surrounded him after he fell down and was potentially around and involved in other shootings as part of the protests that uh, that took place uh, on I think it was I think it's August twenty eighth as I record right now I'm I'm foggy but I do have all the notes uh, uh, around the, I have specific timeline notes for Kenosha in the show notes to give you play by play what happened from the the police shooting to the protest response to then the violence and clash because as perfectly predictable as I predicted on this show and as I know you knew was going to happen. There are now multiple sides that are clashing at these protests. You have right-wing militia groups and you have leftist Marxists who are coming together and fighting and literally shooting themselves. And Trump is unable to properly articulate a position the way the Biden campaign can. Two reporters are fighting right now, uh, trying to get Trump's attention. You're saying, are you no. going to condemn the actions of vigilantes like Kyle Rittenhouse? And- well, we're, we're looking at all of it. Uh, that was an interesting situation. You saw the same tape as I saw. And uh, he was trying to get away from them, I guess, it looks like. And he fell. And then they very violently attacked him. And it was something that we're looking at right now, and it's under investigation. But uh... Now, obviously, that is just throwing meat to the media sharks here, because what they wanted was they wanted the president to say violence is bad. That's it. That's really it. He does articulate a position later on, but uh, that right there, that failure in that very moment is the only soundbite needed. I guess he was in very big trouble. He would have been, I, he probably would have been killed, but it's under, it's under investigation. Do you think private citizens should be taking guns? I'd like to see law enforcement take care of everything. 
I think everything should be taken care of law enforcement. But again, we have to give our cops back, our police back their dignity, the respect. They're very talented people. They're strong. Let the boys in blue handle it. That's what that's just what his go to line needs to be is nonviolent. Let the boys in blue handle it. That's got to be it. Because and then double down on, oh, we got to invest in the cops. Not this, oh, we'll see, there's good people on both sides, back and forth stuff. Because we've seen that play out over and over again. It just takes him not perfectly articulating the response in that moment, and they run with the audio. And then the media is more than happy to jump on the idea that Trump is truly the cause of the violence, stoking the flames. He's the fuel. And there weren't all these problems before Trump. Yesterday, Joe Biden gave a speech where he argued that President Trump incites violence instead of stopping it. And instead of proving Biden wrong, Trump proved him right just a few hours later. Yes, we have seen peaceful protests across the country. Yes, we have seen violence erupt in some cities. And yes, we have seen the president try to paint all of it with the same brush. Why? Because it plays right into his hands. He knows that. That's why he tries to capitalize on it and why he tries to encourage it. Now, you could make that same argument about the Democrats there. This is where you really have to pay attention to just the cognitive dissonance that takes place in these analysis. I mean, this isn't hers, right? She's just reading a script. But the idea that Trump is directly responsible for violence taking place in Democrat-run cities is ludicrous. I watched my mayor of Seattle say it's going to be the summer of love and that it's no big deal and that we're going to have a kumbaya. And then I watched her eat her words as a little boy was murdered and then hid in a taco shack. It's horrible. And it's been a complete, total collapse of leadership. What we have discovered through the coronavirus and through these protests is that leadership at the White House and leadership at the local level is mediocre at best. And when these mediocre people are put in these positions, they have made poor choices over and over and over again. I have watched the mayor of Seattle make a fool of herself. Our local media is covering some of it. The 30-year police chief just had her last interview. And it's, it's emotional. It's emotional. And it's they're they're making it all out to be Trump's fault, and the dissonance in this newsreader's opinion is is striking because you could just replace Trump with a variable, and just that variable could be Democrats, it could be Biden, it could be Trump, it could be this. Just it's generic. Here he is describing Portland, Oregon, or. A city like Portland, where the the entire city is ablaze all the time. No matter how many times the president watches Fox News loop video of a fire in Portland, this is nonsense. The local fire chief told CNN fact checker Daniel Dale that the city is not ablaze. And for the isolated pockets of fires that broke out during demonstrations, they've only needed one fire engine for them. Now, only needing one fire engine and only sending one fire engine are two different things. But this is the subtle way we downplay the violence. You see, it's just fires. It's just a few fires every single night. It's just things that are on fire being hurled at police officers and buildings. It's just a few fires. What's the big deal? Portland's been burning for many years. For decades, it's been burning. 
And I think the people of Portland, and they're tired of it. They're tired of having, uh, of living with this curse. Again, nonsense, but nonsense that is easy to peddle to a host who endlessly airs video from June of fires in Minneapolis or police standoffs in Seattle from July and tries to pass them off as if they happened in late August. So the police standoff, as I record this, was happening 15 hours ago in Seattle. I have a link in the show notes that has video of protesters attempting to burn police officers. In the show notes, Seattle happened, as I record, 15, 16 hours ago. But again, she downplays it and says it's something from July, a, a, a obvious subtle reference to Chaz or Chop. What I really love is two East Coasters, the president and this news actor, telling me about what's happening in my hometowns. It's, it's ridiculous. If you watch her show, you would think Portland has been burning for years. It has. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's way, way, way beyond anything that it's ever been in the last 100 days. But there have been a steady, small, but loyal amount of protesters and dysfunction, from my recollection, since Occupy Wall Street. On and off at different degrees and different temperatures, it's been like this since Occupy Wall Street, just from, you know, walking around the town and seeing people, you know, that kind of observation. But it's like it's so it's so background noise, really. It was just background noise. It wasn't a big deal. You know, you'd see you'd see some spray painted protests here and there, but it just it wasn't really a thing. Maybe a few things lit on fire every now and then. Now it's at a whole new level, though. But it hasn't been burning for years, let alone decades, as the president claims. Now listen to this, as Trump also spins lies about his record on crime. Since the beginning of Operation Legend, we have conducted more than 1,000 arrests and reduced the murder rate in Kansas City, which is one of the cities we targeted, by one-third, got it down 33 percent. That's completely made up. Murders have not declined 33% there, according to data obtained by the Kansas City Star. The city has recorded 135 homicides this year, putting it on track to be the deadliest year on record. There have been 32 homicides since the operation was announced in July. I love that this doesn't sort of prove the overall meta point that the president's trying to make, that violence is up and that these are major issues. Like that's kind of the point, and you just kind of proved it. <laughs> but they don't, they don't care. Uh, what's it, what's really got me fired up though is uh, Portland's mayor Wheeler. Um, this guy's a he's a special case, much like the Seattle mayor. It's fascinating to see these mayors all of a sudden. Uh, they're the, they're the white knights of social justice. They're going to bring change to the United States of America. These two mayors on the west coast it's it's really something and um you can't help but listen to the way portland mayor speaks and think it's completely political president trump for four years we've had to live with you and your racist attacks on black people we learned early about your sexist attitudes towards women we've had to endure clips of you mocking a disabled man We've had to listen to your anti-democratic attacks on journalists. We've read your tweets slamming private citizens to the point of receiving death threats. And we've listened to your attacks on immigrants. We've listened to you label Mexicans rapists. We've heard you say that John McCain wasn't a hero because he was a prisoner of war. 
And now you're attacking Democratic mayors and the very institutions of democracy that have served this nation well since its founding. Do you seriously wonder, Mr. President, why this is the first time in decades that America has seen this level of violence? It's you who have created the hate and the division. It's you who have not found a way to say the names of black people killed by police officers, even as people in law enforcement have. And it's you who claimed that white supremacists are good people. Your campaign of fear is as anti-democratic as anything you've done to create hate and vitriol in our beautiful country. You've tried to divide us more than any other figure in modern history. And now you want me to stop the violence that you helped create. What America needs is for you to be stopped so that we can come back together as one America while recognizing that we must demand that all people, black, brown, white, every color, from every political persuasion, pull together and hold all people accountable in stopping racism and violence. And we together are peaceful again under new leadership that reflects who we really are. We the people of this great nation. President Trump, you bring no peace. You bring no respect to our democracy. You, Mr. President, need to do your job as the leader of this nation. And I, Mr. President, will do my job as the mayor of this city. And we will both be held accountable, as we should. If I were to observe this situation on its surface, what I would have observed here is a left-leaning mayor who believes there is an opportunity to reform public safety, and is using his leverage to work with Black Lives Matter to reform and reshape it in the way that is more equitable for more people. And he's taking a shot at Trump for attempting to, to send in the troops. And, he's a, and in doing so, he is defending the protesters' First Amendment rights. That, if I were to observe this, I think, just surface level, that's what I would take away from this. The reality, though, is much different. This very, very much is a political calculation on Wheeler's part. Because the, the missing piece here that is hard to appreciate on the outside is the protesters hate him. They hate him. They don't work with him. They have, they have gassed him when he went out in the past. They have demanded his resignation for, I think, 80 days straight now. <laughs> and they even lit a huge fire outside his condo and staged a protest demanding his resignation on his birthday. Well, this is where the protest was happening last night at 10th and Gleason. And you can see as we cross the crosswalk, there's some fire damage to the asphalt right there. Now, I'm going to continue on with this in a moment so you can get the scale of this. But this is an important data point you need to take in is they're not working with him. He's he's not a champion of anyone. They don't like him. He's leveraging it, though, to play it as a political weapon. And um, this has gotten 
so far out of hand that they almost burned down the building he lived in, which is a high rise that many other people are in. But what you can't see is the fire damage that's inside this dental office, fire that could have spread up into the apartment building where the mayor lives. <laughs> the mood was festive in a way at Monday night's protest outside Mayor Ted Wheeler's apartment building. It was his birthday and people were calling for him to resign. But when some broke windows and got into the building, the mood changed. It broke the glass and there were a couple of panes and there was glass charts everywhere here. Eli Shamali is one of the partners at Pearl District Dental Clinic. They've been in the Pearl since 2002. I, I thought premeditated. And never anything like this. If these curtains had gone up, it could have been much worse. Burn marks in his office, burn marks on his wall, burn holes in his curtains. Shamali supports free speech. But I think in, in, in our case, they really broke, broke through the line. They actually tried to set fire inside uh, in, the, in the deep space of the clinic. And that, in a high-rise building, that's completely uncalled for. That could have uh, gotten out of hand and it could have really led to something pretty serious. It wasn't an accident. Police declared a riot and moved people out, pushing them west on Gleason. Police made arrests, including this one. You can see the officer running to and then tackling and punching one person down on the street. Portland police tell us they are reviewing this use of force to determine if it meets their standards. Today, the cleanup and frustration by people who live here, including a man who lives in the same building as the mayor. Tom Drew says he and many others support the Black Lives Matter movement. I think, sadly, this no longer has anything whatsoever to do with Black Lives Matter, and that's the tragedy of this. This is going to be a sentiment you see repeated over and over again. And that's why it was causing Biden to slide in the polls. That's why he had to make a correction on this. And the most embarrassing thing out of all of this is the Portland mayor has had to announce that he's moving. He has to leave because he's too much of a threat to the people in that building. Lots of bad things were happening to this poor, foolish very stupid mayor. All he has to do is call, and within 10 minutes, their problem will be over. Fox was more than happy to let Trump have his victory lap and really kind of twist it in and put some salt in the wound. As you know, they have to call us. They have to call and request help. All he has to do is call, and the problem will end. That was President Trump talking about Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, who says he is moving out of his home after weeks of protests outside of his condo building. Meanwhile, police are investigating the weekend shooting death of a supporter of the right wing group Patriot Prayer. Matt Finn is live. I will include a link to the letter that the mayor wrote to the condominium folks apologizing. <laughs> it's pretty embarrassing as well. Um, and it's not just him. San Jose's mayor also uh, had his house vandalized badly um, by Black Lives Matter. And the ironic thing here again is this is another mayor who proclaim, proclaims to be a BLM supporter willing to make reforms, even has a big BLM poster in his front window, which is quite the sight to see, to see protesters in his front lawn spray painting and tagging his house and trashing his front yard while he's got a big old poster in the front window claiming to support the very movement that is there trashing his place. Overnight, a stunning scene outside the home of San Jose's mayor as vandals spray painted all over it. NBC Bay Area's Marianne Favreau is in San Jose with reaction from the mayor. 
After the mayor's house was vandalized, police later arrested a suspect for vandalizing City Hall. Now they're trying to determine if the two incidents are linked. Demonstrators descended on San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo's home just before 11 last night, spray-painting profanity, burning flags, and firing paintballs. They had marched to his house after protesting the death of Jacob Blake during a demonstration downtown. This wasn't about a protest. This wasn't about expressing First Amendment. No, not now. This is the mayor, by the way. Of course, when it's about his house, all of a sudden... All of a sudden, the tone changes a little Town. bit. This wasn't about a protest. This wasn't about expressing First Amendment rights. This was... Now, when it's smashing small businesses' windows and destroying other people's homes and setting fire to federal buildings, then then it is about free speech and Black Lives Matter. But when it's his personal house and property, then it's not. a protest. This wasn't about expressing First Amendment Rights. This was uh, about thuggery and vandalism, and it's that simple. The mayor wasn't thuggery, home at the time. Thuggery. When he arrived, he found dozens of neighbors with brooms and cleaners scrubbing off paint and removing eggs tossed at his house. It was so heartening to see a couple dozen of my neighbors just dropping everything they were doing, bringing their kids out 10, 11 o'clock at night to scrub graffiti off the front of my house. Uh, it says so much about the character of our community. Licardo says he supports the Black Lives Matter movement. So do his neighbors. Well, I understand they're angry, um, but I think in, in a way it's like you're you're upsetting people that are actually on your side and sympathetic. So I think that's kind of counterproductive. It's pathetic and counterproductive. Here's the problem, uh, supporter. You're not on their side. See, you like things the way they are. You like the status quo. Uh, you you support them from an ideological standpoint, but you don't actually support them. You're not on their side. You just haven't figured that out yet, but they already have. Two mayors, two mayors. How pathetic and stupid does this look? And ultimately, here's what really upsets me is I think this is going to do long-term harm to the public's ability to protest. When there are real problems, real issues that we should be in the streets about right now, including including how screwed up the police are, when there are real issues that we should be in the streets right now, lots of them, many of them, that's why a show like this exists, but the public opinion and the, and the politicians' opinion, and in order to win elections and wanting to look strong— it's all going to shift hard on this. And now the Democrats and the Republicans have shifted to hard anti-protest. Now, you're going to see over the next few weeks, history is going to be rewritten, and it's going to be because of right-wing protesters and militia, of course. <laughs> but either way, these protests have an expiration date. I don't know what it is yet, but it's clear that both sides now are not down to clown. And you don't go after the leadership class. That's when you start to have your end of days written. When you start going after governors and mayors, you're, you're going to get shut down. <laughs> you can go after the working people and destroy their businesses. Nobody in government cares about that. But when you go after people in government, well, they care about that. Just don't debate people in government. That's what Nancy Pelosi says. Is this, this year, this political election, it's too important. This presidential election, it's too important to debate. Myself, just don't tell anybody I told you this. Especially don't tell Joe Biden. 
I don't think that there should be any debates. I do not think that the President of the United States has comported himself in a way that anybody should, and, and that has any association with truth, evidence, data, and facts. I wouldn't, I wouldn't legitimize a conversation with him, nor a debate in terms of the presidency of the United States. Now, this might be the best articulated excuse she's done yet for why Joe shouldn't debate. Uh, I think we all know, right, why they don't want Joe to debate. But this is a clever approach. You know, don't legitimize the president of the United States by having the conversation. Now, I know that the Biden campaign thinks in a different way about this, but I just, I thought what he did in the uh, 2016 was disgraceful, stalking Hillary Clinton like that. I was disappointed that the press didn't say, go back to your station. You're not here. You don't own this stage. You, are, you have your own podium. She has hers. So I, I think that he'll probably act in a way that is beneath the dignity of the presidency. He does that every day. Uh, but I think he will also belittle what the debates are supposed to be about. So skipping them and... Just avoiding them altogether, that, that, that legitimizes them. And they're not to be about uh, the skullduggery on the part of somebody who has no um, respect for the office he holds, uh, much less the democratic process. Why else would he try to undermine the elections in the manner in which he is doing? So, Says the uh, Russiagate enthusiast. So if Joe Biden asked you what I thought about it, I don't think that he should dignify that conversation with Donald Trump. You could have you ask them any questions, both of them, just take their own stage for any number of deba- uh, conversations about any subjects. Hold them accountable. What are they proposing? What is their vision? What is their knowledge? Ask them questions. Just don't make them debate. She actually backtracks pretty quick because people, what? What? What do you mean no debates? What do you mean? What do you mean no debates? This uh, issue about whether uh, Joe Biden even wants to address uh, Donald Trump and debate him uh, this fall was first triggered by some comments from Nancy Pelosi saying she doesn't think it's a good idea. The guy lies. Why should you bother? Makes up stuff. So, so you should skip out of that. Joe Biden comes back a little later in an interview to say, no, 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 no I'm still planning to, to debate the president. And then Nancy, well, clarifying things. Take a look. Well, I have every confidence in Joe Biden. As I've said, he has, uh, he knows why. (laughs) Right, right, right. It's not, this isn't a lack of confidence that he's going to not be able to keep up with Trump at all. No, of course not. That's not just the first thing that comes to mind that I think to say. Well, I have every confidence in Joe Biden. As I've said, he has, uh, he knows why. He knows his why. Why I said he shouldn't debate him has nothing to do with Joe Biden. Joe Biden uh, will be great as, as, he is great as a debater. Yeah, 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 that yeah, he's gonna be fine. I'm really looking forward to it, actually. Um, watched a Joe Biden press conference today, and I thought he seemed pretty sharp, uh, like there was some life behind his eyes and calmer. He got thrown a curveball by a Fox News reporter after he kind of ended the event, and then he was like trying to be nice and then instantly regretted it because he realized he called on a Fox guy who was trying to pin him down. <laughs> but I mean, Biden seemed to track the questions and seemed to answer it. And he made it like a solid 25 minutes. Um, that's pretty good. Like, 
And he he kept really kind of level headed and calm about it the entire time, and um, did flub a couple of things, but generally managed to fix it up pretty nice. If he can keep that up, uh, he it may be a good strategy to have him out of the basement. Honestly, what I saw in that press conference was the best I had seen of Joe, um, with the exception of the DNC speech that he did, the acceptance speech. Um, I I think. They, I think he's figured out whatever it is that makes it so that way he's able to do this and keep up. Uh, he's figured it out. Um, and if he can keep it up until the election and if he keeps going out there, he he may be his best advocate. Like that's usually what Trump say is Trump supporters say Trump's his best advocate. I tend to disagree. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, I think it's probably worth talking about third party stuff a little bit in the show. I think we've talked enough about uh the main party. Um, and there was a special event that happened. There's the People's Parties, the People's Party Convention, which is just kind of a new idea. And it has some interesting people behind it. And it was just live streamed recently. And I, I thought I'd play you a couple of highlights from the People's Party Convention. And this was the introduction to the stream. The whole thing was virtual, it had very much that Zoom vibe going. But it, it opened up with a fairly produced video. And here's uh, a little bit of it. A people's movement to transform this country. We're going to transform this country in a way that they've never seen before. In unprecedented times. Because Wall Street has two major parties. Working people have none. Tom Perez is totally bought by corporate America. He's not working for the people. The two candidates don't meet the criteria of integrity. That we need a people's party. In terms of the lobbyists who are hired primarily by corporations for their own interests. They're up for sale. They're tied to big money. These corporate Democrats operate just like Republicans. Nothing's going to change. Who told us that? Joe Biden himself. It's the most honest thing he's ever said. In these times of crisis, more than ever before, we need honest leadership. So they're really kind of going for a hard sell on on essentially what is a new left, a left that isn't a corporatist left. And it's it's being um, orchestrated, this convention, by Nick Brana. And I'll play a little bit of his intro just to give you, you know, a flavor. Our host, Nick Brana. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Sisters and brothers, young go. and old, black, brown, and white, poor, and middle class, and to those from every corner of the country, welcome to the People's Convention. My name is Nick Brana. I am the founder and national coordinator with the Movement for People's Party, and your host for this historic day. We announced the People's Convention just three weeks ago. And they did try to get a few name 
Um, I'll play you just a, a spattering of highlights here. Uh, you'll hear from, it starts with Chris Hedges, uh, v- Jesse Ventura's in here, other other somewhat well-known names in the what you could kind of consider the former left or progressives or, or libertarian groups that have kind of come together to be sort of the key speakers of this event. And this is a compilation of some of that. There is only one choice in this election, and that is the consolidation of oligarchic power under Donald Trump or the consolidation of oligarchic power under Joe Biden. The oligarchs with Trump or Biden will win again, and we will lose. The oligarchs made it abundantly clear, should Bernie Sanders have miraculously become the Democratic Party nominee, they would join forces with the Republicans to crush him. So this right there is a pretty beautiful insight. And it really kind of shows you why the Democrats keep running Clinton and Clinton to, I mean, uh, Biden. They're running them because they have to, because they're the party of the establishment. And if they don't do it, then the establishment's perfectly happy. Establishment being business interests, you know, big contractors for the defense industry, you know, probably well-established politicians. I mean, there's this is a large group of people, right? And they, they don't really have these morals that you and I talk about. So they're perfectly happy throwing him behind another candidate. They might prefer the one that's a little more, more pro-invade the Middle East and a little more pro-invade Syria and the one that's a little more complicit in the Russia boogie narrative. And I mean, for them, it just works better, right? So they're, they're kind of lean Democrat because that's the Democrats now. But, you know, if they got to have a Republican in there, that's fine, too. They can work with them. And that is a nice little little nugget insight and explains why they keep running these loser candidates, why we keep having these two horrible choices. So Hedges is on point here. Democratic Party nominee. They would join forces with the Republicans to crush him. The oligarchs preach the mantra of the least worst to us when they attempt to ram a Hillary Clinton or a Joe Biden down our throats, but ignore it for themselves. They prefer Biden over Trump, but they can live with either. Only one thing matters to the oligarchs. It is not democracy. It is not truth. It is not the consent of the governed. It is not income inequality. It is not the surveillance state. It is not endless war. It is not jobs. It is not the climate breakdown. It is the primacy of corporate power, which has extinguished our democracy and left most of the working class and the working poor in misery, as well as the continued increase and consolidation of their wealth. It is impossible to work within the system to shatter the hegemony of oligarchic power or institute meaningful reform. Change, real change, will only come by sustained acts of mass civil disobedience and mobilization, as with the Yellow Vest movement in France and the British-based Extinction Rebellion. The longer we are fooled by the electoral burlesque, the more disempowered we will become. Well, I got news for you. (laughs) John Adams, one of our forefathers of the country, warned us, I believe it was Adams. Yep. Uh, yeah, Ventura. When he said, when political parties take over the government, when they become so powerful, that will be the end of the United States as we know it. Well, people, don't you think we're kind of there right now? The two political parties have really taken over. And I like to refer to them as really the one political party. They're the corporate party. Now, why do we need to elect a third party president? Here is why. 
I find interesting that people of various backgrounds and belief systems are consolidating on a couple of new realities. They're sort of zeroing right in on what the issue is with both parties in the United States, even though they have different backgrounds, even though they have different political beliefs. There's a consolidation on what we are realizing is the core problem, the core rot. No matter if you elect Trump or Biden, the polarization is going to continue and it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. The only way out is to give them a common enemy. And that's what the third party does. They fear the third party more than anything else. And guess who knows that from experience? You're looking at him. Now, if you look at the great social justice movements in our history, such as abolition, such as women's suffrage, third parties were extremely important. Abolition did not emerge from a major party. It emerged from the abolitionist party. Women's suffrage did not emerge from a major political party. It emerged from the women's party. Social security did not emerge from a major party. It emerged from the socialist party. But I say that in complete support of Ryan and Nick in saying that they don't want to think of this as a third party. They want it to be a major party. And I agree with everyone here in saying that if the Democrats don't feel that there's a real alternative to their corporatist agenda, then at this point, with everything we've been through, with what happened to Bernie in 16, what happened to Bernie this year, and to be honest, what happened to me? I've been there. I know it from the inside. The Republican Party has been so taken over by a corporatist agenda, they don't even pretend that they're not. But the Democratic Party is very interesting, isn't it? It sees all the suffering that is created by a corporatist agenda, and it does, in ways that it can, try to ameliorate the suffering on the periphery. But neither the Democratic Party, any more than the Republican Party, will actually challenge the underlying forces that make all that suffering inevitable. So we got some dragons to slay, baby. We got to slay the dragons of neo-fascism. As Dr. West said, the gangster in the White House, he must go. There is no doubt about it. He must go. And I agree with Dr. West that people are coming at this at all angles. I get it. See, I'm not a boat shamer. I'll leave that for the professionals. Hello, somebody. I'm just old fashioned and I just believe that folks who are running for office ought to earn the vote. And how do you earn the vote? You don't earn it by doing the same old, same old. You earn that vote by giving people a bit. See, you got to have a vision that provides provision for the people. I have the entire um, stream linked in the show notes if you would like to watch it. I thought that was a pretty good representation of some of the speakers. And I do agree with a lot of that. Uh, I think by a lot of that, I would probably be considered like their key demo. Um, I do remain deeply skeptical of any third party chance. And something that seems even more striking in 2020 than in 2016 is even less coverage of third party candidates. Uh, it was at least possible to find audio of Jill Stein or Gary Johnson doing interviews and answering questions and having their Aleppo moments. But that doesn't even exist this time around. There is such focus on Trump and if Biden can beat him that it has deafened any other discussion. So I am um, looking for good audio. Uh, 
even professionally produced, like media, like anything I can find about the third party candidates, please link it up in the Discord on filter.show slash Discord. There's a clips channel in there. Um, you might have to mention me because things are so crazy busy right now. So uh, super crazy, wild, unbelievably busy. So I do sometimes go a couple days uh, without checking the Discord. I want to do a little uh, left-right media breakdown before we get out of here. This is kind of one of the last things of the show today. <laughs> this one is um, clips of MSNBC melting down after the Trump White House speech at the RNC. This is just their reaction to it. And um, the number one thing that triggers them, of course, is that people are not wearing masks. It'll be the same super spreader story tonight where not all of the 1,000 people attending Trump's speech at the White House will have been tested for the coronavirus. All right, so that bothers them right there because, of course, the Biden campaign, Joe always walks out wearing a mask before he leaves the stage. He puts the mask on. But even like at the at the press conference Joe had today about education and going back to school in the background, they had little masks and they had like apples and pencils and face masks like they're really embracing the face mask thing. What could go wrong? What Reza Aslan said to me is that the difference between a religion and a cult is that in a religion, your savior dies for you. In a cult, you're asked to die for your savior. This is a cult of personality. And I asked him at that meeting, do you fear that the cult of Trump could be a death cult, that, that, they, that people would be willing to risk death? I have literally seen interviews where people would say, I don't care if I get sick. I have to see him. I have to be near him. I have to go to him. This is the collapsing the other side down to a single variable argument that I warn you about all the time. In her mind, the reason why people will go to an event like this is because of this cult of Trump. It's, it's the same rationale that Linux users and Windows users will wave their hands and say, oh, people only buy iPhones and people only buy MacBooks because Apple's great at marketing. It's the cult of Apple. And it obviously doesn't fundamentally explain the complexities and what goes into market choice and why they send mil- why they why they sell millions and millions and millions, right? Same with this thing here at this Trump convention. Some people are there as a, as a political protest, not wearing a mask. Some people probably think it's caused by five G and a mask doesn't help, right? I mean, it's the whole range. It turns out every single person there is an individual with their own rationale and their own reasoning. But what happens in this analysis is it gets collapsed down to this. It's this cult of personality. That's why people are doing this. It's it's a risk to their lives. I have to be in his presence. That is like a a, a piece of B-roll from a movie about a pandemic. Yeah. I mean, that no, that's a piece of B-roll from a movie about propaganda for lots of hugging and selfies and all the rest of it. And a lot of bold faced names among them. Um, one bold-faced name, Republican, former presidential candidate Herman Cain, has already very sadly died over the past few months after attending a Trump rally. He's, I can't believe she worked that in. He's going to get people killed. He's going to get people sick. All of these people packed in, um, which what could be a COVID super spreader event at the White House. It is remarkable the size of that crowd and how yeah. close everybody is. Does Donald Trump actually care? Because, you know, there is some reporting that he changed his mind about sending help to states for hurricanes when he was told, well, these are our people that could die. Do you think that he cares that some of his own people could get sick and maybe die by being at this event at the White House? Say you're a Trump voter, but you've got a pediatric cancer patient as, a, as your kid. Mm-hmm. So, you, so you've got a strong man over here. You've got a mask on and, and you hope that when you run to Costco, 
Other people have masks on, so you don't bring anything home that gets your super immune, mm-hmm. vulnerable kid sick. Whatever that straw man was, I, I can't remember it. If you ask the person online ahead of you at Costco to put on a mask and they tell you to F off, mm-hmm. they're going to point to this knife. That's right. I love that right there. <laughs> they're going to point to this knife. Uh, yes, it's it's. it's impossible for them to do an unbiased analysis they can't they can't conceptualize that all these people have different motivations now we switch to the right here is uh glenn beck a uh, now uh infamous trump lover after starting out as a trump hater and he is continuing to just hit those biden is no moderate talking points. And listen to the cute little playful banter they have here because Biden is so left extreme. It's it's so obvious how progressive he is. It's a joke to them. Bernie Sanders. Come on, man. You say he's a radical. He's not. Does he look like a radical? Well, Bernie Sanders does look like I a mean, radical. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Confuse these two. Joe Biden. Come well, on, man. You wouldn't think it would be easy to confuse those two, but yeah. it's a lot easier than than I think a lot of people recognize because people are trying to make out Biden to be this moderate mm-hmm. and running to the right of Bernie Sanders does not make you a moderate. Okay. Oh, is he running to the right of Bernie Sanders? <laughs> well, he is. A, <laughs> he's certainly moving the that way, but... Yeah. He hasn't really been there uh, for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, look, is is Biden a moderate? You know, <laughs> like if you compare him to that field, sometimes people might call him a moderate, right? Because you had people like Bernie Sanders, like Bill de Blasio. I just want to remind them that President Trump is the one that declared that the Republicans are the party of pre-existing conditions now. And it's President Trump that has been in office that has been pumping money into the economy and cut these socialist checks <laughs> to the people as a relief check during the coronavirus. I mean, that's President Trump, right? So what are we going by here as the measuring stick anymore? Because it doesn't seem like the old measuring sticks make any sense. But they're still hitting those points because they know it resonates, they know it works, and they know it's what the Trump campaign wants. This is how outfits like Beck eventually get access to the president. He is on a campaign to get Trump on his show before the election. And so they know this is what they want him talking about. And thankfully, Beck's co-host here is doing a good job of nursemaiding him through this conversation, which Beck opened and blew. But they're now back on track and trying to position Biden as some extreme leftist. Now, if you compare him to Bernie, sure enough, but yeah, he's really left. People who like have embraced communism throughout their lives uh, are in that field, so he I, looks a little more conservative. You keep using that word moderate. I do not think it means what you think it means. If you're comparing him to Karl Marx, right. and he's like, I'm not fully there, that's still not a moderate. It's like saying um, Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift <laughs> is a better film than Too Fast, Too Furious. Right. It's, it's not like that at all, actually. You see, they, they really have nothing. And point to something, right? Point to something. Give me an example here. Is it the fact that they're going to do absolutely nothing about health care and it's just going to be more of the same? Is that the radical left thing that Joe's doing? What is it? I, <laughs> I just wish we, had a, I wish we had a real discussion around this. You can see how they're trying to pander. And listen to the ego on Beck here. And this is why I don't play... Um, Clips. I got criticism recently for not playing like things from the blaze. Um, and I, I generally don't. I do take in media. I should probably make this clear. 
there's tons of sources I take in, um, but I don't always play at all. Sometimes because some of it is so distracting. Because when you play certain characters like Beck, it immediately just gets certain people upset. Or like when I opened the show with Democracy Now!, there are people listening that get upset hearing Amy Goodman's voice. It's a real thing. And I get crap about it. So I wanted to I, I wanted to play a little bit of this to kind of explain why I don't really play a lot of Beck or, or Limba or those types here on the show because it's for them, they are such egomaniacs that the information density is extremely low. Listen to this clip. Listen to the narcissism in this clip. I felt yeah. so bad about what I said, how I said things in 2016. Um, and I've been feeling this way for a couple of days during this convention. Uh, and I just feel like I, I need to apologize to his children um, because I can't imagine. I mean, I just had Donald Trump Jr. on with us and I can't imagine he acted like we were old friends. I can't imagine they didn't have several conversations about me at the dinner table. <laughs> you hear that? Listen, I'm going to play it again. I feel like I, I need to apologize to his children um, can't because imagine. I can't imagine. I mean, I just had Donald Trump Jr. on with us. And I can't imagine he acted like we were old friends. I can't imagine they didn't have several conversations about me at the dinner table. You dumb narcissist DJ. He acted like your old friends because he needs your audience. He acted like your old friends because you are a tool. You are a useful idiot. You are a means to an ends. I'm sure they must have talked about me around the dinner table several times. We're old friends. <laughs> I can't imagine they didn't have several conversations about me at the dinner table. <laughs> I also, I like that in Glenn Beck's Trump world, the Trumps, Eric and Ivanka, they're all sitting around the table. Jared's there. Melania's there. They're all sitting there at the table having dinner together. And they're talking about Glenn Beck. <laughs> that man has lost it he has lost it my friends anyways i watch him i watch them all i watch the left i watch the right i criticize them all i break it all down some of it makes it in the show some of it is just what informs the commentary a lot of times some of the juicier bits that make it into the show maybe in one form or maybe don't make it into the show at all those juicier bits are linked in the show notes unfilter.show slash 325 links there please do go check those out there's sometimes stuff in there that I really want you to know about just didn't have a chance to make it the show because it's already too darn long also thank you to my patrons please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash unfilter and if you got time to head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to consume your podcast and leave us a couple of stars and a review I'd appreciate that see you next week Man, just calm down. It's okay.